0: Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net.
1: I push the button, Sean. I don't know.
2: Where, where is that button taking us today? I don't know.
1: It's, it's uh, red. It, it has a count. Red. It's not a countdown. What is the opposite of a countdown? Count, count
3: up. It's just a a, a clock, uh, a <laughs> timer. Timer. There yeah. you go. Is there is there an abort uh, abort <laughs> button here? I think there is. I think mean, there is. There's always an abort button during a launch sequence because I mean you know everything can go wrong, just yeah. like a podcast. Exactly. <laughs> we'll have our yeah. finger at the ready for
1: that one today. Well, yeah. the, there is a that that button that I pushed. It is now as ready. Says and broadcast. So I know that if oh. I push that, I can stop this. But would you want to stop it when you're already up in the air? I don't a rocket. That would not, not oh. be well. Good. Um,
3: it, it's a it's a very expensive abort sequence. But yeah. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you, um, if you hit that, and it will detach you from your the first. Stage the the, mm. the launch vehicle. It will detach uh, your the spacecraft and its housing. It'll rocket you up a little bit further and away from the, the 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 first stage itself, and then you just you know float down and your parachutes deploy. But it's yeah, it's very expensive because you're tr- you're um,
1: trashing a lot of cash.
3: Yep. Yeah, you just <laughs> and, and, and
2: hopefully hopefully it's a nice gentle float down. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah, unless unless that rocket is retrievable, you just you kiss kiss that first stage goodbye. And even if it is retrievable, it's like, you know how much gas you just burned up? And gas mm-hmm. ain't cheap right now. So <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. for sure. Yeah, but,
1: but then there is the old next generation you know, with SpaceX that they come back and they launch yeah. a lot of them. So eventually we can talk about that. But Sean, Battery-powered we're going to rockets. Space. We're going to space.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, we ba- to space.
1: battery rocket battery
2: powered is- rockets yeah And we don't have oh, to waste man. gas that'd be Ooh. great right mm-hmm. well
1: there is some of that in in stuff that is already up there i mean that's how they they get the energy to go right solar panel a lot of them but i don't think that there is the energy to put enough. them up <laughs> out enough. of the gravity
2: not quite enough Oomph. Yep. No, in that, no i
1: don't right. think so so Everybody listening, uh, you already heard the voice. awfully uh, you heard our first podcast together, and uh, it's Matthew Williams. Matthew, thank you for joining us again.
2: Hey. Great to have you Love on you. again. Thanks. Yeah. Love you.
1: <laughs> so last time we went into the future of education, and then we found out that you actually do a lot of writing about space. You, you're you a writer mm-hmm. and curator for Universe Today. Uh, interesting engineering a contributor stardom space stellar amenities and then you're also a science fiction author so we're like hey please come back let's talk about space
2: <laughs> we, we, we enjoyed it and we like this topic
3: so let's do yeah, it. my my favorite topic you know it's favorite place to be
2: how how that happened i mean
1: let's start with that and then a little introduction again about yourself more than what i said if it's not enough but Mm-hmm. Where did this passion for space come from?
3: Space? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's uh, it's hard to say. But uh, I mean, I grew up in uh, the '80s, right? I was exposed to Star Wars, Star Trek, and and some of the best uh, science fiction literature um, around, and um, it just it always it always got to me. it. it it, it always you know lit a fire, and uh, by the time I was a teenager, I started actually uh, being able to appreciate uh, a lot of what uh, I'd grown up with. I was like revisiting all the, the the books and movies and stuff, and realizing that oh, I can appreciate this on a, on a, on a new level because I'm now old enough and and I'm mentally mature enough to appreciate a lot of what they're saying and the points they're making and. Somewhere along the line, um, there was a class in high school that really kind of helped click it, and it was, uh, we were studying sort of the the way technology and society are come together and the impact it has, and yeah, I was just, I was really blown away by that, and uh, I I felt like uh, when I I got to university and, and I was studying the history of science, I felt like there's so much here. I don't know. I feel like a rank amateur. I like that feeling because, you know, it's like you just, you just want to pursue, um, try to find answers, you know? And yeah, it, it's, That's it's my awesome. first question to you. Mm-hmm. Are, are the
2: answers in space?
3: Do you think? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I think, uh, the answers to the to all our questions are in space. Um, and it's not because, uh, it's because, of course, you know, uh, life in, in the universe is directly linked to life here on Earth. Our activities are, in both space and on Earth, are completely and utterly linked. There, there's no there's no separation, right? Well, there, there's this attitude, I've felt, and I, I've seen this a lot in recent years, that, um, yeah, activities on Earth and space, these are two separate domains, and you can do one, or the other, but not both, right? Shouldn't we fix Earth first? Is the biggest question I uh, ever hear, and it's like they're they're not separate. What makes you think they're separate? Right? And if we're gonna succeed up there, any any success we have up there is gonna be directly applicable down here. But that's yeah, that's a whole nother. <laughs> um, to quote uh, Dr. Cyan Proctor. She, would, she says this uh, quite a bit, and I've heard other people saying it too. Um, solving for space solves for Earth. And she, she went up on the Inspiration4 uh, uh, mission there. She was one of the four citizen astronauts. And so I, I, I quote that anytime I can, and I'm always attributing it to her because it's like, well, that's where I heard it. And as far as I know, she invented that.
2: <laughs> well, so I, It's, I, the, it's yeah. the equivalent of all the research in Formula One. Gets applied to sure. other driving things, right? So you, you have to have that,
1: yeah, other,
2: other view of things. To
1: I I, th- I love that because you know I like Formula One, but I think uh, for space, it's it's a lot more philosophical than that. <laughs> but- yeah. But you know it's it's a drive is a driving force for sure for innovation but i think yeah. that the where you just went uh, matthew with the philosophical approaches to to learn okay. about ourselves to learn about the origin of everything yeah. and i'm going to break a news here it's not 42 the answer ah. you know
2: yeah 42.42 <laughs> so, maybe yeah.
1: maybe that 42. Let let us let's, let's stay there. So there is different ways to to know the the universe to to explore. And one is to actually go there, which we know Never. is not that simple. We talk about the abort and the, the big rocket, and you know, we're going back to the moon, which could be a, a topic for another conversation, that's for sure. But a way to go to space, the oldest way, the safest way is to look up. About. Into into space and and I think that today should be the core of this conversation. We said we'll mm-hmm. talk about the Webb uh, telescope, but there are a ton of other telescopes out there. There are telescopes here. Um, uh, I live in LA and I did a trip to Mount Wilson, where where Hubble did the research. a you know, hundred years ago, when whenever that was, and mm-hmm. it blew my mind just to be mm-hmm. in that place where this happened. Right, so. Tell us, so what do we see when we look up in the sky oh. and 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 how many ways there are to look up in the sky? No.
3: Uh, well, good question. So the second part, I think first, uh, there's uh, there's any number of ways, but the the two chief ones are to look through ground-based telescopes, right? Uh, here on earth, big observatories, big primary mirrors. That are going to look up at the night sky and uh and and they're going to see you know our solar system and distant objects without the interference of the uh, of uh, the sun of sunlight right um as a kid i often wondered that it's like why is it that the stars come out at night obviously it has to do with the sun setting but why is it that they're not visible the rest of the time what how does this work and yeah, it's like well, light is uh, reflected by our sun, and when it's uh, in the sky above, it, it drowns out all that background light. And we're seeing yeah, um, but uh, yeah, once it once it sets, and if you if you live in a place without a lot of light pollution, you, you have the added benefit there. It's like you you see clearly the cosmos, and not as it is but as it was when all that that light first left all those sources right um the second play the second way to to see it is from space and um like you said yeah going to space and and looking at it from down here those are those are separate things but it was uh nancy grace roman who was a, a seminal nasa researcher and she is uh, she's called the mother of Hubble. She was the one who first proposed how uh, a spacecraft observatory, like Hubble Space Telescope, how it could uh, be the best of both worlds. You send this this telescope into space, it orbits the Earth uh, or at at a either in in orbit of Earth or at a a Lagrange point, one of the the stable points, and you can, you can look and survey the universe, but you don't have to worry about um, any atmospheric interference either, because that's that's one thing ground-based telescopes uh, always have to deal with is atmospheric inter- interference. Right? As light passes through our atmosphere, it gets it gets warbled and distorted, and we can get around that. There's there's uh, adaptive optics, as they call them, there, which will correct for that. But otherwise. Anything you see, you is you have to accept is going to be just a little distorted. So, yeah, those are the two chief ways we look at the universe. What we're seeing, um, well, yeah, we're basically seeing um, space-time. We're seeing the past. Um, yeah, because no information that's coming from that kind of distance is current. So, basically, we're looking... Um, through time as we are looking through space.
1: Yeah. And what I was referring to about different way to look is mm-hmm. you know, there are different kind of telescope that sees different things. So oh. infrared. Yeah, you, you do like audio signals telescope. You do a lot of other things. Spectrometers and whatever. So why why do we need that? And I'm asking yeah. questions as yeah, thinking what the audience may want to hear, right? So.
3: Yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. You're you're right. I uh, I'm sorry, I I, I I didn't clue into that. Uh, oh different... no, no,
1: that's totally. correct. Yeah. That it's too much um, to clue in. <laughs>
3: yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Um, optical telescopes, as as we call them, or, or the optical filter. Um, that's you're talking about visible light, and that means light that comes in all the the colors of the rainbow there. Um, but as scientists have known for quite some time, it's that there is this huge range on either side of the visible spectrum that is not visible. You can't just see it. Um, and um, I believe it was Isaac Newton who did this. He he put a, he a, installed a prism uh, over this little hole, um, and uh, so sunlight was shining in through into this room just through a tiny hole. He put a prism in the way, and so that broke the light into colors. And then the colors were then projected onto this table. And he put thermometers on them because he wanted to see if if uh, different colors of light corresponded to different temperatures. And he found that they did. And um, but it, it, yeah, the blue end things were you know ever so slightly cooler. Down to the red end things were warmer. But then one of his thermometers was not getting hit by any um visible light but it was it was hotter than than all of them and from that they realized there's something beyond the color spectrum here and so all the research we've done said, like yeah there's infrared which is you know to um on the other side of uh the red end of the spectrum and that's heat um, if we go on the opposite side beyond blue and violet we have ultraviolet right? I mean, they, they put it right in the names there to, to let you know where, where on the spectrum it is. And yeah. And, um, uh, you also have x-rays, gamma rays, uh, et cetera, microwaves. And yeah, it's like the, the shorter the wavelength, the more harmful it, it can be to you, to yourselves. Um, uh, but otherwise, yeah, it's like, well, the, the human body can, can, uh, handle all kinds of radiation in, in limited amounts. And, That's sort of the the double-edged nature of the cosmos and our sun. (laughs) It's shining light in all directions and radiation in all directions. And some of that, it has the power to give life and to to kill it. So um, the reason why we look in all these different filters is because um, the only smart way I could put it is to say we want to see all of what's there. Because if we're only looking at visible light, we're only going to see what is visible to us, what our eyes can discern, um, what is making it to us in spite of all the interference or, or dust and gas that's, you know, absorbing it. So James Webb in particular, it's equipped to do um, spectronomy. It's, uh, it's going to be looking at um, dust um, and gases and solar systems and formation. And it's doing that by looking at the heat that they emit. And then its spectrometers look at that and uh, and say, well, I, I see these chemical elements and that, and that's going to be very important to searching for life, um, because yeah, it's like we can only really identify life by identifying the chemical signatures of it. So that's yeah, that's why we do it. And yeah, in that respect, it's it's a, a it's a successor to Hubble. It's a successor to Spitzer. Um, it, uh, there are other observatories like uh, Chandra and uh, Compton, which look for X-rays and gamma rays, and uh, they're going to have their own their own successors in the future. But this one is picking up where, where Hubble sort of uh, where Hubble still is still is working there, um, and it's going to focus on the infrared. And by picking out signatures of heat in, in the universe, yeah, it's like wherever light got absorbed and not enough, uh, we can't see enough of that being re-emitted. Um, we're going to look in the infrared and we're going to see the bright patches where all this energy is being soaked up and these things which we otherwise couldn't see are now visible to us.
2: Maybe, yeah. can, can you can you talk to me a little bit more about what we see? Because there's the visible light which we can actually see straight yeah. away. That's, that's yeah. us looking through a telescope, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then there's the translation of what the device and perhaps some compute power can take that information and translate it into something we can see through (laughs) through our eyes. So I'm wondering uh, uh, maybe at a high level, how does that work for each of the, maybe generally speaking? And what I'm really curious about is how that information is captured. Because when I'm looking through a telescope, it's real time. It's through my eyes Ah. into my brain. I might remember it. um, Mm -hmm. Eventually I'll forget it. And I think yeah. the value of this is the be the ability to record this information, mm-hmm. translate it so we can actually see it as humans, maybe refer back to it, look at changes over time. So talk to me about that whole process of translation and storage and using that data long term.
3: <laughs> that's that's uh, that's hard. It's a little outside my wheelhouse, <laughs> but uh, I'll do my best. Okay, I, just, I, I reserve the right to uh, you know feel stupid here. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, no matter what you're doing, you're looking at photons, right? And photons have different wavelengths, you know, they, they're a particle and a wave at the same time, right? And as they're passing through your optics, depending on what filters you've got in place, they will, they'll register, right? Um, now, with an optical telescope, uh, you know, it used to be uh, they would take photographs, Right have photo paper there the light comes in the the photons hit in this pattern so now we have a picture of like uh jupiter or uh pluto right light bouncing off of it and into our telescopes there um but the way we do it today is um it's similar but the images are acquired by a computer they're digitally rendered and depending on the filters you use there again right it's like uh well we're separating. Um, different wavelengths of light into different uh, filters. When we recombine them, we create a color image of what that looks like out there. And if we also have filters there that can intercept uh, infrared photons, and then yeah, that's that's going to show up there too. And uh, in order to, rendering that again, you know, requires a computer there, and it's showing. Well, this is what this is the pattern of the light. It glowed like this. Um, it's, and once you add color to that and infrared imagery, you know, they'll usually, uh, they'll use, uh, like uh, red, orange, yellow, and white there to show the hottest, uh, points and green and blue to show the cool spots. Yeah. Once you render that, it's like, yep, that's, we're looking at this big heat source here. If it was something we could see, it would glow that brightly. Um, yeah, that's, that's basically what we're seeing. It's just, Patterns of photons that then have to be um, digitally or photographically rendered in order to make sense to our eyes. Um, mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the best idea. There.
2: <laughs> oh, that's that's um, perfect, perfect for my simple brain. Anyway,
1: <laughs> okay. Good. Well, you, you know, it, it is about breaking it down uh, on on an understandable. Way, right? I mean, we, we don't mm-hmm. we're not the physicists that do this kind of stuff, but you know, at least we have a grasp of you more than us, and and then we ask some questions. Some are stupid, some are a little smarter than others.
2: Uh, so mine are stupid, yours are smarter than <laughs> pretty
3: that. <laughs> pretty I should add that a lot of uh, a lot of images are taken, they're black and white originally, right? They're just they're they're taking in light, they're discerning between presence of light and the absence of light, and it's just black and white, and then they will add colors to it in order to show, um, yeah, what parts of the spectrum were coming through here. This is how it would look to the naked eye if your eyes were really high definition, you know, and yeah, it's often exaggerated, uh, but just to give you a sense of, of what uh, what colors and what elements are there, because that's the other thing. Light comes in many colors uh, often because of its uh of its of the chemical structure of what is absorbing that and radiating that uh, not not often always <laughs> so yeah if i see a big red nebula it's like in real in to my naked eye it actually wouldn't be look all all that red but um yeah in uh, astronomical imagery it uh, they would add red to it to say yeah that's a hydrogen rich nebula so mm-hmm. red is the color that we would be seeing, um, because if we look at it through a spectrometer, then yeah, we'd be seeing little lines on, on, around the red end of the spectrum there, um, which is yeah. Again, that, that comes back to what James Webb is going to be able to do.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about let's talk about the James Webb because mm-hmm. so you, you, they they put a, a folded origami mm-hmm. on a big rocket and they shoot it up in space, and then they reach in some sort of place Uh where there is a specific point, like the Lagrange point, if I remember well. It's going to stay there. It's only a million miles away, (laughs) and then it's going to be unfolded. Well, it is already being unfolded successfully, and now they're actually... Focusing all the different lenses and I've seen the picture of what it looked like a week ago and what it looks like today And it's you know, it's like oh, it's I'm turning the wheel. It's it's getting on focus and Mm -hmm. so Is that crazy? I mean you can even go over there and fix it like you did on the hubble if something Mm -hmm. goes wrong there That's a lot of money. Just hanging.
3: Yeah,
1: why do we take that risk of? Uh. Why why
3: we there yet yeah, well yeah uh i would say that the answer to that question it's the same with for um because everybody was asking this you know why are we still funding it if uh, with all the delays and all the cost overruns right and it's like well the reason though they're the delays and cost overruns is yeah they have to make sure it works perfectly because if they send it up and it's not uh sending a servicing mission is not an option here it doesn't have uh astronauts can't just hop aboard it like they did Hubble and straighten the lens out and that was really expensive by the way that whole that mission um yeah that but, was fun yeah the the reason why is the payoff um it's a like this this telescope is our most powerful most complex uh most capable mission uh to date and it's going to be it's going to be followed by uh, several more next and uh, next-to-next-generation telescopes. Um, but the capabilities it has are pretty are pretty special. So it's going to be uh, one of our most important observatories for quite a while, I think. And, and just, yeah, getting there? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, you, you, you said it perfectly there. Are we there yet? Yeah, getting there is... It's like we, we won't be even begin to really appreciate just how much this mission will mean until we turn it on and start really, really seeing what's out there. But we, uh, yeah, it's like NASA and all the people who contributed to it, they know what it's going to be looking at. And, you know, the rest of us who've heard the descriptions, we have some idea of what it's going to be making possible. So it's like, yeah, we got to get it there. Yeah, we spent so much money on it already, but that only seems to motivate us to keep going (laughs) um, because... Yeah, it's like this is this has been too expensive and too big to fail. And the payoffs are going to be so immeasurable we can't not <laughs> get it out there. Yeah.
1: So I was hearing a podcast the other day actually with uh, with John Mather, which is the the, the Nobel Prize physicist that is, I think it's senior if not the the guy that runs the old James Webb uh, mm-hmm. Operation and, and somebody says the expectation is to show that it's worth the money that we spent to put it there is to actually get a picture of the Big Bang. Oh. And I think, like, it's kind of like, I don't know, what, what's your take on that?
3: Well, um, yeah, it, the James Webb is not actually going to be able to see the Big Bang in itself unfolding. It's going to be, it's going to be looking back through space and time to some of the earliest periods in the universe. Um, so we're going to see the results of the Big Bang for sure. Um, we're going to see the earliest galaxies in formation, um, and the first stars, the earliest stars, um, and yeah, the first, uh, planets. Now that's, there's still a limit to how far back we can see. Um, among its, um, its objectives are is to see the the first uh, light in the universe after the Big Bang, um, or the light from the first stars and galaxies, right? Anything um, and it, it, in doing that, it's piercing what's known as the cosmic dark ages. Um, we've had a hard time penetrating that with our instruments because it's like light from this period uh, has been shifted so, so very far. Um, it, it would really only be visible to us today in what's called the 21 centimeter uh, radio emission domain. And that is, um, yeah, that is, that's rather hard for our instruments to, to pick up. Um, and this, this is caused by the fact that during this period the universe was permeated with hydrogen that had been created uh, from all the, the heat and radiation unleashed by the Big Bang. As that formed into stars and galaxies, the light of these stars and galaxies dispelled those clouds, and so our instruments today are able to see that. Um, but so much was happening when the universe was still shrouded in all this mystery. Um, yeah, we want to be able to pierce that that veil and see the first stars and galaxies in formation. And James Webb is going to be the first telescope that is you know, that can do this in a, in a dedicated way because it'll be able to pick up the uh, emission lines that correspond to uh, um, uh, to hydrogen and or to the radio waves uh, emitted by hydrogen. Um, yeah.
1: I, I ask the, the questions that I have absolutely no clue. So thank you yeah. for for explaining that. And I know there is way more on the on the table than than <laughs> yeah. that. But what, okay. what is the thing that strike you the most about? Um, the web Telescope. Is, is that like, you know, something about the actual power that it has? The fact that we were able to place it where it is without yeah. controls, or I mean, I don't know. But what's a yeah. big breakthrough here? Then, then you say many more, even more powerful, are going to come.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. It, it's power, but what really blows me away is its complexity and its sophistication and that that's part of why it took so long to to get ready it's like we need an observatory that can be because it's an infrared observatory it needs to be able to stay very very cold so there's no heat interference that's going to throw off its uh, its uh mirrors so it's got to have that big complicated sun shield and it's that's got to go through a big complicated deployment Um, the, the mirror itself, right? The 18 segments, they're all beryllium and shiny gold colored. Um, those two, right? Those have to be all perfectly aligned and it's got to fold into place. And then the secondary, um, uh, mirror's got to deploy in front of it. And yeah, it's like the only way you could send something this big up there is to make, make sure that it can fold up and scrunch down into this tiny little, Um, well, not tiny, but (laughs) smaller uh, vessel, and you can fit that inside the the payload fairing of a rocket and launch that up, but once it gets there, it's going to have to unfold again, and they had to do that on Earth over and over and over again to make sure that it would unfold the right way in space, So in, you know, in a lab, they're doing that in a vacuum chamber, they're doing that. And it's just like, yeah, we, this, this has to be, there has to be no margin for error here. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a wonder we got, we're able to do it at all because it's just so complicated. Um, it's, you'd think uh, most people would have quit would have given up and quit a long time ago. (laughs) But again, you know, it's like the payoff, man, the prize, and also, God, we spent so much money on this already. Let's just, you know, let's get it done.
2: <laughs> but that yeah, that blows
3: me away for real.
2: Yeah. So I'm wondering what um how does that fit into the the big picture of other research being done using telescopes from Earth? Um, does this oh, yeah. eliminate the need for some of those? Does it enhance that work? Does it does it change how we look? Look at these uh, terrestrial devices, um, and maybe in- innovate and enhance them in ways we hadn't thought of before. That, wow,
3: that's a very, very good question. Um, yeah, enhance, yeah, because um, what it's going to do is going to be complementary to a lot of what uh, a lot of te- what a lot of telescopes are going to be doing here on the ground. Um, there's Several every time every time I've written anything about next generation telescopes, I always have to include, um, you know, the ground based ones. I got to mention the, the big three here, like the extremely large telescope, uh, the giant Magellan telescope and the 30 meter telescope, because um, they're all going to be involved in this. Uh, James Webb is going to be very good at spotting um, extrasolar planets by the light that they emit, um, right? The light that's reflected uh, off of their atmospheres and their surfaces. Um, it's going to spot them with its infrared optics. And then these ground-based observatories are going to do the follow-up observations, looking very closely at them and saying, um, so that light we see coming from that exoplanet's atmosphere, what chemical signatures are there, right? And uh, Webb is going to be able to do that too. It's going to, you know, it's, it's got spectrometers galore and it's going to see the the patterns of the light uh, from those atmospheres, but the ground-based ones are going to are going to be doing this uh, as well, and they're going to have uh, they're employ these heavy-duty coronagraphs that are going to block out the, the light from the sun that's that would interfere with any readings. Um, they're going to have their adaptive optics there to make sure they got a pristine view of it, and they're they're going to be the ones spending lots of time in follow-up observations characterizing the atmospheres. And that's that's a huge leap um, because um, exoplanet studies have been about discovery for the most part in, until now. And it's like, well, now astronomers should have been making the transition to looking more closely at the ones we've already found and already confirmed and saying, okay, so what's there? what What's the atmosphere made up of? Is it actually potentially habitable or or not? And um, yeah, these these new instruments, they're gonna pick up that thread and they're going to say, well, we can see an atmosphere that's rich in nitrogen and oxygen. So that's a good sign. Um, and we're also detecting the chemical signatures of carbon dioxide. So it has a greenhouse effect, but it's a lot of carbon dioxide. so. Maybe somebody's there pumping that into the air with factories Mm. and fires and such. And it's like, Oh, that's, that's not only pointing the the, the way to life. It's pointing the way to technology, to civilization. And they're a lot like us, you know, they're ruining their planet. That's, Mm. you know, they're, they're pretty stupid like us. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. So it's going to be complimentary. And when Nancy Grace Roman telescope goes up named after Hubble's mom, um, yeah, it's it's going to be Hubble's truest successor in every sense, and it um, it will be working with James Webb as well. Uh, in that case, it's the Nancy Grace Roman that's going to spot uh, exoplanets in, in large numbers, um, and uh, yeah, and, and James Webb is going to do the follow up. But they yeah, they're all working together, so nobody's doing everything, and it will it will ultimately because of limited time um every observatory has a you know a certain amount of time of observing hours right so different scientific teams need to book time uh mostly they just consult data that was gathered during a a certain survey so yeah the fact that uh an, an observatory's time is very precious is one of the best reasons for having multiple observatories doing multiple things
1: That's interesting, actually, and I think we we can start wrap with this because then you go to exoplanets. So you start Mm -hmm. having questions about uh, alien life and why we do that and a lot of theories out there. But let's not go there, although I would love to talk in another Mm -hmm. episode, maybe focus on exoplanets.
3: Oh, Oh, God,
1: yes. (laughs) I'm interested in in the space, in the time allocated. So mm-hmm. if you want to go and look through <laughs> through the James Webb, can you do it? Who is doing that? I mean, apart from yeah. the people that put it out there and, and us, I mean, I, I well, was hearing that th- there were schools applying for that, college research center. D- do you know anything about how how these
3: happen? Um, not really. <laughs> okay, uh, well, that's good. Yeah, uh, <laughs> neither. What, I, what I do know is... Uh, uh, there there is uh, uh there are resources for this so uh um, i'm posting their link to uh the nasa website the nasa's james webb space uh, telescope uh, mm-hmm. site um and uh yeah i do believe they cover who uh, will be able to uh access information from it because of course yeah this is uh this information is meant to be shared and uh in terms of who who can't, I, uh, I I'm not sure. Um, certainly, yeah, the participating space agencies have uh, have their fingers in that uh, that pie. There, they can uh, they can draw on that information there, and any uh, accredited academic university can do that as well. But yeah, I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure citizen astronomers are also able to access that information,
1: or, or at least you can access, like you said. You may not be the one that is requesting the task, sure. but you can get the data collected yeah. by other. Yeah.
3: Yeah. In, in terms of who is setting the priorities, right? In terms of yes, that
1: planning. that was more of my yeah. question, I believe. Yeah.
3: That that's that would be the space agencies involved there. So NASA, mm-hmm. absolutely, they uh, they're they will be saying, um, yeah. In, the, in this particular campaign, James Webb is going to be looking here, 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 here uh data will be provided it will be made accessible from this campaign and here's where you go to get it um yeah as to what requirements you need to meet <laughs> to gain access uh yeah well they, there are some they it's it's not just uh not just anyone can access it but yeah
2: i have so many questions in my head because i'm not versed in this space pun mm-hmm. intended. um but we've, we don't have time to dig into it all. So I think we, we mm-hmm. definitely have many more conversations here. Um, yeah. I'm all about the, the technology and how things work and, and uh, the data and, and ultimately what the outcome is. And mm-hmm. um, I know you, you kind of hinted to some of the things, but it, beyond discovery and learning, what do we do to actually take action with the information that we're, that we're gathering? Um, Does it impact climate change? Does it impact the way we power things? I don't know. There's probably a gazillion ways we can take this all spinning around in my head at the moment. But um, (laughs) I mean, just just to get an idea that there are multiple types of telescopes and visuals and and collecting that information, translating it for us to understand
3: the uh, our ecosystem better. uh, is super cool to me. That's a very good question. And. The implications of that, yeah, are, are profound too. Um, in terms of what, like actionable stuff, well, yeah. Um, for example, uh, James Webb is going to uh, be looking for exoplanets. It's also going to be looking in our own backyard for uh, for interstellar objects, for asteroids and ice asteroids that we haven't seen yet, and comets. It's going to be looking for life. Um, part part of the mission is astrobiology, so it's going to look at uh, moons like Europa and Ganymede and um, uh, Enceladus and Titan and and others, because the, these places are thought to have oceans in their interior, which could support life. So that will that will directly and drastically impact the exploration of those. Um, that mainly has to do with you know the future of space exploration. It's not really applicable to climate change, but it will um, it will tell us. Um, you know, if any missions headed for Europa, um, you don't, don't go through the ice, right? We've confirmed that there are biosignatures on the surface. They're coming up from the interior. Nothing can survive on the surface, but there's got to be life down beneath. So, you know, if you're going to land on the surface, uh, in fact, maybe don't land on the surface at all. Stay in orbit, fly through the plumes, pick up all the scientific data you can from them uh, and and then just come on uh, well and then uh, transmit that back and, and crash not on the moon though <laughs> crash in jupiter's atmosphere right um yeah it's like if, if we find life out there we have to be extremely careful careful about the possibility of contamination um and um yeah if we spot any objects in our solar system as uh, some have suggested there they don't look uh, natural. They look like they're actually uh, probe-like or they're, they're, they look like they're pieces of something that someone built. Um, if, in fact, a Muamua was a, an alien an extraterrestrial sail craft, and extraterrestrial sailcraft and our solar system gets thousands of such objects passing through it uh, or has had thousands passing through it since it first formed, Um, and some of them actually stayed, well, then, yeah, it's like, uh, we need to, that's going to have huge implications for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, I'm I'm having a hard time finding an application for climate change. (laughs) But it's like, yeah, all all this research makes us appreciate (laughs) where we are in the universe, right? So, yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, looking for techno signatures abroad. It's like, maybe, maybe this will get us, thinking and talking more seriously about curbing emissions because you know we see this on other planets there and some of them look pretty dead now um, we would like to avoid that prospect yeah but yeah
1: you know to to end these as we're running out of time i would say you know even just that we started with the idea of the formula one developing then the, our cars <laughs> i mean just think about the technology that he went to put and test and, and 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 the old design system to, to actually put the Gems Web observatory where it is, the fact that it is working so far is actually working perfectly mm-hmm. and is not even completely all set up yet. I mean all of that, all that technology, all that know how it's it's it can bring, I'm sure, somehow bring back to our Everyday use, and for many oh, yeah. things that we don't even know. I mean, we know that a lot of stuff developed by NASA for astronauts, we're using it every day. Uh, mm-hmm. We sleep on it. We, you know, we do, we do other things. So,
3: the, the, the full list, the full list of applications there. Yeah, uh, that since the Apollo era, yeah, NASA spin-off, they keep track of that. And, and uh, thank you for mentioning that. Uh, that slipped my mind. There, <laughs> the. Um, because Sean, yeah, the, uh, commercial applications from all space, uh, research there, right? I mean, these, uh, those, the technologies, the ideas that it's made available for free to the, to, um, uh, yeah, to, uh, the commercial sector to do, to develop everything from, you know, medical treatments and, uh, uh and processes to, uh, yeah, just knickknacks gadgets and so forth that make our lives easier or more complicated whatever um, yeah so yeah no matter what it's like uh, James Webb will have uh, lots of applications many of which we're probably already using um, yeah that will better life uh, for people on earth and that's always the way it's been yeah, yeah. so
1: and that's what a lot of people are doing on the International Space Station as well and uh... yes. Yes. And and then there is the other conversation about commercialization of space and a lot more things. So, I'm yeah. going to draw a line here, Sean. I I think we we've learned a lot today. A- abort, abort. I'm abort. going to abort <laughs> this conversation. No, I'm not yeah. aborting. I'm going to actually, I'm going to actually uh, at this point. If you've heard it this far, it means that it was not aborted, right. and Let's we got to the end of it. Ooh, we're just we're pausing right. it. We're pausing it, Matthew, and. uh and hopefully, we'll we'll pick it back from here. Maybe we'll bring even some more, you know, maybe some guests to, to, to talk it over with us. And uh, and uh, we, we we just love to talk about space.
3: So Absolutely.
1: I'm up for that.
3: I need yeah, a... I'd love to talk about exoplanets. I mean, that yeah. is a wonderful, rich field. And, yeah, I can't wait to see what James Webb has to say about just even planets next door, especially the, the planets next door.
1: And by yeah. next door, it's everything is very <laughs> relative here. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> still talking about million of light years away. That's yeah,
2: right.
3: well, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's an
2: app, a, an app community for that next door planets. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, there is. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, All yeah.
1: Right. yeah they well, talked well, about yeah.
2: the, the dog that got lost, and they need help finding the dog. Mm. In the planet wow. in the next
3: door. All right. Yeah, the, the closest, the closest <laughs> ones are just uh, just <laughs> over four light years away, though. In, in, in Proxima Centauri, so yeah, that is going to be uh, really interesting to learn more about those guys. It's still, yeah, I mean, that's that's unfathomably far by our standards, but in cosmological terms, it's right next to me. <laughs> exactly. Nice.
2: All right. All right. Sounds sounds like we have another mission, Mark. Yes.
1: We do ready. have another mission, and right. uh, we're going to push this red button again to end this conversation. And we invite you to check the notes. Uh, Matthew will probably share with us a couple of these links. If so people can check we, already out. We, already we already have one. We already have one. We're going to have more. And uh, stay yes. tuned. We'll talk about space and a lot of other things on ITS3 Magazine and in particular on audio signals, So yes. we kind of go all over the places in space yes. too. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. Hey, my pleasure.
0: Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys, by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues.